You like Fireboy? I do. You're listening to Your Tables on Fire. A weekly conversation with the hottest game designers on Kickstarter. Here comes your host, Jeff Beck. Thanks for tuning in to Your Tables on Fire. This is episode number 27. All right. With me today, we have a bit of a living legend. This is Sandy Peterson, the founder of Peterson Games and the designer of Grantha, The God's War. Sandy, welcome to your Tables on Fire. Hello there. How are you doing? We're doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Now, for anyone who, who's not familiar with you and your, your background, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your... Certainly. Um, I've been a professional game designer uh, pretty much my whole adult life. Uh, my first uh, game, a published game, was Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game, which was also the first Lovecraft game ever. Mm-hmm. I worked doing role-playing games for about eight years. Then I went into the computer game industry, where I had the good fortune to work on uh, some fairly well-known products such as uh, Civilization, uh, Doom, Quake, the Age of Empire series. I eventually left computer games and went back into uh, board games, where I did the now legendary Cthulhu Wars board game, Mm -hmm. and uh, I I founded a small game company called Peterson Games, and we are now actively promoting my uh, current game, which is Glorantha of the God's War. Well, okay, so there's there's a lot to dig in there, but I guess my first question on that is, you know, so you mentioned that you released the very first Cthulhu game. Yeah. You know, as kind of the founder of what's now the empire of Cthulhu games, (laughs) <laughs> what what initially drew you into that? Well, um, in the first place, I wanted to get clear that I thought of it at the time as a Lovecraft game because Cthulhu wasn't like a thing; mm. it wasn't a me- it wasn't known, right? So, which is a game about Lovecraft. We picked the game Call of Cthulhu because that was because we thought that would be a, a well known Lovecraft story. Um, mm. What happened is that ever since I was a kid, eight years old, it was when I read my first Lovecraft story, and I was fascinated by it. I was one of those annoying, precocious kids that liked to read a lot. <laughs> obnoxious. Um, and I just, and uh, Lovecraft is one of the stories I read, and I got fascinated by it. And I spent uh, probably the next 10 years trying to find other books, other works by Lovecraft. And it wasn't easy. He was out of print a lot of the time. When I was uh, about 25 years old, well, actually earlier than that, when I was about 18 years old, I found out about uh, Dungeons of the Dragons. I started playing Dungeons of the Dragons. I liked role-playing games. And I had the idea to do like a horror-based uh, role-playing game set in modern times. And I had the good luck to have Chaosium offer me to, uh, to do such a game based on Lovecraft. What had happened is that at that time, Lovecraft wasn't well known. In fact, the guys at Chaosium uh, had contempt for him as an author. They just thought they'd be fans of his. Hmm. Uh, Almost everyone I knew who knew about Lovecraft knew about him because of me, because I introduced them. (laughs) Okay, so he was he was obscure. But the guys at Chaosium were also smart enough to know that because they didn't respect Lovecraft. They would need someone who is a fan to actually design the game. Because if they did one, it would be like all snarky. And they didn't want that. They wanted a sincere, solid game. So that's something that more game companies, for that matter, movie directors, should figure out, right, about their topics. Right. You know what I mean? Like the third movie in a series about a superhero is always by some guy that doesn't have respect for superheroes and they make it really camp. And then, and then it bombs and they, you know. And they wonder why. They wonder why. So. 
uh, Call, Call of Cthulhu was a big hit. It's still in print. It's in the seventh edition now. Um, and so that was, like I said, the first Lovecraft game. A few years ago, I was at a convention in Providence, actually a Lovecraft convention, and they gave me the, the second ever Howie Award, which is a little statue of Lovecraft, <coughs> and it's for, I guess, contributions to Lovecraftiness. I'm not sure exactly, <laughs> but the first one went to Stuart Gordon for his series of movies, uh, you know, from Beyond, Reanimator, and their their argument at, at the place, which I which was flattering, was that the reason Lovecraft is well-known today and that Cthulhu was a meme and all that kind of stuff was partly as a result of Stuart Gordon's movies coming out in the early 80s and partly as a result of Call of Cthulhu coming out in the early 80s. And both these things kind of went through culture from different directions and made there be an awareness of this author and his works and his monsters. Hmm. Well, I mean, as you know, now Cthulhu is... is probably the single largest most popular topic amongst tabletop gaming you know it's really taken off in the last few years how do you, how do you feel about it is it is it doing it right uh yeah well i remember when i did cthulhu wars uh there was one review that was that was a, the guy hadn't played it but he was opposed to it in general principles and one of his arguments was that cthulhu had been overdone which i can't really take issue with it's he's probably right but I felt that if the guy who did the first Cthulhu game couldn't do a Cthulhu game, then, right. you know, things had come to a pretty pass. <laughs> so I figured I had the right to do it. In fact, what, what was happening at the time is that my uh, uh, I had just got out of a year at a failed uh, iOS app company, and I had decided that I was going to essentially retire from game design and go work for the man and make, you know, be a creative consultant for another company. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, forever after, and uh, essentially, but before I did that, I wanted to do one last game, and I wanted to do my game, my dream game I'd always wanted to do, and uh, I thought that it might do a couple hundred thousand dollars on Kickstarter, and then I would have like a little cash cow to support me in my old age as I <laughs> retired from gaming and went and literally moved to India to work for an iOS company there. That was my job offer. Wow. Um, it was a good offer. It was good pay. I got a part of the company. But, you know, I was doing games for someone else, which is, to be frank, that's what I've done most of my life as a game designer, right? Mm-hmm. Game designers rarely get to pick their topic. But the Cthulhu Wars, I was going to pick my topic, by golly. It was going to be my game. It was going to be this massive, overproduced luxury product that was going to blow everyone away, and then I'd be done, right? I, I would then retire and be... It was going to be my swan song. Right. Instead, what happened is that it did... Uh, well over a million dollars. It was this gigantic hit. Everyone loved it. And I, and instead of taking the job in India, I founded Peterson Games and started the company. And, and it was became like, instead of a swan song, it was a phoenix. <laughs> right? And I, I'm back. And now I'm, do, now I'm doing the God's War, which is another topic dear to my heart. Uh, and so... Uh, wow. That's a great story. It was... It amazed me. <laughs> So, given your experience, you know you've you've done digital games, you've done tabletop games. Take a minute and talk about from from the perspective of a game designer, what are the pros and cons of each medium? Okay, the uh, the pros of doing a computer game or a video game are that you have a giant uh, a number of helpful creative people on it with you. At least the kind I did. I know you can have small crack teams doing uh, digital stuff, but I t- typically work with large teams where I'd have several game designers under me, I'd have a t- team of four or five programmers, I'd have 
you know, five or ten artists. We had this huge team, and they were all working together to make the best thing possible. And then when it would get published, it would sell tens of millions of copies, which, you know, was, was gratifying. Uh, the disadvantage of doing computer games is that it takes years to do, and it's much less your creature because of the whole team, which is not necessarily all bad because they, they are clever and, and do innovative things. But with with board games, I can do a full-on board game in much less time than I can do a computer game. Hmm. Um, and also, uh, because the team is so small, uh, financially, I get like a way bigger share of the loot than I did. I mean, <laughs> when I did a computer when I did Age of Empires, then I had then I had to rely on the largesse of Microsoft to uh, uh, to support the family. But I had a steady paycheck with with God's War and Cthulhu Wars. I, I'm on my own. I mean, I run the company, and if it doesn't make money, then I don't make you know. So it's kind of, I kind of feel like I am, I've, I've thrown myself into the water at the deep end and now it's time to dog paddle, but it's, <laughs> but it's really exhilarating. You know, I love having control of my destiny. I love having the small, the small creative team instead of always the big creative team. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind having the uncertainty about the future because the fact is the big games look, seem like they're secure because there's a giant company, everything's working. But the fact is those things, those suckers went, I mean, Ensemble Studios, which never sold less than a million copies of a game, totally went under because Microsoft decided a guy at Microsoft decided that his stock options would be maximized if they fired all of us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it wasn't actually secure; it just seemed that way. <laughs> wow, that's that's crazy. Well, tell us, you know, you, so you've been designing games for a very long time. Tell us a little bit about how you do that. What what is your process? Okay, my process is that I come up with a game idea and I try to get a version of the game that can be played as early in the process as I can. I don't, I don't sit there and overthink it for weeks and then finally get a thing and put it together. I get a version of it up and running immediately. Like when I, when I first played Cthulhu Wars, it was literally a week after I had started designing things in Visio on my computer. And uh, when my when my friend played it, it came together really fast, which was fortunate. My friend played it. We we're playing it with me, and and he said, "This seems like really developed. How long have you worked on it?" I was embarrassed to tell him it had only been a week, and I, I told him it had been over a month. Um, but but my technique is, I get the game up there, we get a version running, we started playing it, and then we constantly play test it again and again and again, and I and I am taking in feedback and I'm listening to the players and I'm incorporating things. And one of the things I've learned is how to listen to the players because there's like an, a, a science to it. When I worked at Ensemble Studios, I was one of my jobs besides designing games was to be in charge of almost all the balance play balance sessions. And I had to learn that players are almost always right about what's wrong with the game, but they are rarely correct about how to fix it. All right. So you have to look at what's wrong and then say, okay, they, and sometimes they're right. I'm not saying they're always wrong, but sometimes they, their idea about fixing it would break something else or it wouldn't fix it the right way. And you have to look deeper and figure it out. And that's the skill. That's, I guess, my contribution. Um, and I, the result of this is that my games probably take longer to do than a typical person's games because of the playtest time. And uh, also the fact that they take even more playtest time because they're all like these massively asymmetrical things. Right. right. The good part is that I that by the time the game's ready to go, I know for a fact that it's fun because we've been playing it for a year or so. People are enjoying it. They're laughing when they play it. They ask to play it again next time I go. And so that is uh, that's actually a very comforting feeling to know my game is fun. Whatever else is wrong with it, it's fun to play. <laughs> if nothing else, at least it's fun. 
Well, that's 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 you know, I think worse things have been said about a game than you know, it's fun. So, yeah. Uh, so did you follow a similar process with uh, the God's War, meaning, you know, it was a very quick initial development and then oh, jump yeah. right my, into playtesting? My first playtests of the God's War were in January 2014. <laughs> and wow. here I am in 2016. Okay, now, there was hiatuses in there where I'd be trying out Orcs Must Die or something else. But yeah, that was the procedure. Playtest, 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 take feedback, uh, watch the players interact, figure out how to adjust things. Um, lots of evolutionary things. I mean, there's occasionally there's something that I can't, you can't get out of playtest. You have to sit there and, and produce some big game sequence, you know, that, that, right. No one's going to like, for example, in the God's war, I don't know if you have a chance to look at it or not, but there is a, uh, uh, um, where there's a print and play that, you know, out there that you can play for free. And it's one of the part of the games is called the chaos rift. And it's sort of like a multiplayer prisoner's dilemma where everyone can defect or contribute and you kind of want to all stop it but you want the other guys to pay for it not yourself it's a really powerful part of the game that is proven extremely fun mm -hmm. and that's not something that you can get through playtest so that's i guess that's where 36 years as a game designer came in i always wanted to have a cool prisoner's dilemma thing in my game and this is it <laughs> yeah that's great well so you know you gave us a little introduction to the god's ward but can you, for those that aren't familiar with the game at all, can you give us the description? Yes, The God's War is, I'm going to say it's large, but that implies that it's this huge long game that takes forever to play, and it's not. It takes about two hours to play. Hmm. Uh, but it's big in size, and it has huge, fabulous figures. Uh, have, have you seen any of them? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, yeah, well, they're bigger than they look on the on the Kickstarter, because, for example, the, the Hell Mother, that, that, that witch on all fours, hmm. she's four inches across. She's a hundred millimeter bait. Oh, wow. So these are colossal figures. They're all made to be 28 millimeter scale, so that even the little guys are the same size as you'd use in Dungeons the Dragons or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then they're on this big map where where you each play in your own faction, and their factions are very asymmetrical, where you have different powers from the other guys. You kind of develop your own faction as you're playing, and it changes it up. And the interactions are all different. So every time you play, you're doing different things and trying different strategies, and they are too, and you have to react to what they're doing, and it's. It's a this dark fantasy game about the destruction of the world as well as the creation. It's like the creation and the destruction myth both going on at the same time. So, wow, it's a very light game. It sounds. <laughs> <laughs> it's when, when people play it, it's about destroying the world. But I hear them laughing and 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 smack talking each other, and there's lots of table. So, and of course, when I play it, the same thing happens. So the game is. Uh, is delightful and they like trying out the new factions is now we're going to try the the invisible god what's he like and they make jokes about how he's in god's invisible and mm. and how i should make a big base with nothing on it um but, but then they play it and it's you know when you play the storm guide you feel like this bully that goes around and kicks the other guys in the teeth and kind of takes names when you play uh, chaos you feel like mindless destruction when you play earth mm. you feel like everyone's worst ex-girlfriend where you give with one hand and take away with the other <laughs> That kind of thing. They all feel uh, unusual and different, and so it's, it's you know that's the anyway that's the idea. That's God's War at its best. Hmm. So tell us about you know if we were to fa uh, rewind back to I think you said 2014, the very first playtest. Uh, obviously the components were different, but how was how was the gameplay different back then? Um, I didn't have the uh, chaos nest, comp the chaos rift completely hammered out. There was only uh, six factions instead of the eight I have now, mm. and uh, the way a little tiny detail about all the factions were really different, um, like how they used their buildings, 
how they uh, like lots of little things that you wouldn't care about. And uh, I didn't have the the extras on it, the elder races and the monsters. And I didn't have the great compromise sequence, which comes in now after the chaos. Or basically, as the game is going on, things happen periodically as the world changes. You, you trigger certain events, the chaos rift, the great compromise, the end of the game. The great compromise proves to be a really uh, useful thing that comes in. What happens is people are trying to become the judge of the compromise. And the judge gets this big boost in... Uh, in victory points, and he also has to hand out victory points to the other players uh, in the certain ratio. So he generally tends to do, use, do it by giving the most victory points to the person who's furthest behind, so it becomes this catch-up mechanism for them, and uh, and makes almost all the games end in a close tie, but of course then he's trying to get ahead, and the other guys are trying to knock him out of the position, and it's, you know, everyone is, is backbiting and hostile, and that's kind of what I want in my games, so. <laughs> that's intentional, huh? Yeah. Well, so you, you said you have these eight factions. Yes. Pick pick one that maybe maybe is not the strongest, maybe it's not the most obvious, but is just has the coolest element, and give us a, a little description of that. Uh, well, okay, I'll pick one from the uh, starting uh, areas, the, the alphabetically first one, chaos. So chaos is um, kind of about mindless destruction. They have. Uh, they, 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 for example, their, their, their chief god, the mad god, has a marker that goes on the victory point track. And every time anyone dies in the game, not, not you killing them, anyone, like, like if Storm's fighting darkness and one of them gets killed, that counts as a death, then mm -hmm. the mad god marker goes up a step. And that's the mad god's combat level. So during the course of the game, it keeps going up higher and higher. As other people are fighting and doing things, he gets stronger. So you delight in this destruction. And it leads you to do weird things. Like sometimes you'll send your army into battle knowing you're going to be annihilated. But you don't care because you're going to, it's going to send up the Mad God marker a bunch, which you love. And you don't really value your troops because you can you have this ability called Eruption where you can destroy one of your buildings and replace it with all of your minions that you have in your in your force pool. So they're cheap and disposable. And so you're running around this huge army and you're throwing them to combat insanely, like, as though you were, in fact, chaotic. Now, it actually makes sense to you um, rationally to do this, but what it looks like in the game is this hordes of these gravity monsters going across the world and, and attacking pointlessly and dying in droves to the glory of their gods and all these terrible things happening, and it just gets worse and worse, and, and you're always gloating and exulting when other bad things happen to them, and you're the only guy that likes the Chaos Rift when that struggle happens, so, so you, you feel like you are you are the elemental force of chaos. And the other players do too, which is yeah. So there's an example of one. Wow, that's, that's, that sounds really exciting. That's really cool. So Glorantha, that, that's an existing setting, right? That's something yes, you invented for this game. It's actually been around 50 years. Wow, really? It was created by a man called Greg Stafford, who really liked mythology. Then when he started creating it, he didn't know there was modern fantasy works. He only knew about you know, like Norse and Roman stuff, mm -hmm. Greek. So he didn't, he, he didn't read Michael Moorcock or, or things like that. He didn't know about those. So he made up this whole world based on other, like, actual mythologies, kind of. And then in college, he found out that there was, like, Tolkien. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was this really weird mythic world, but he kept the world. And he eventually made games based on it. And uh, so you have this cool myth world that's not based on Tolkien, which is, un which like, let's face it, most fantasy worlds are to some degree. Right. This one's not, so it's this odd, dark fantasy place. And when I went to work for Chaos Team after doing uh, Call of Cthulhu, 
I actually got to help develop Glorantha for gaming because Greg is like really creative and interesting when it comes to making up like a world and the, and how the world works and the races on it and the mythic rules. But he's not necessarily practical when it comes to making it fun for people to play in that world. <laughs> that was kind of like my job to make it so it would be fun, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Goliath has been around a long time. It's never been this huge thing that dominated the industry, but it had comic books and computer games. King of Dragon Pass, the best-known computer game. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there's the novels uh, and board games and role-playing games and everything, so it's, it has a lot of stuff to it. But really, the bottom line is, I didn't pick Glorantha because... Um, old Glorantha, I must do a game based on this old system that I liked. So the thing is that when you're, when you're doing a fantasy game of any sort, you have to have a setting. It's not, you can't, there's, not, there's no such thing as a generic fantasy, right? It, as soon as you say something like there's dragons, suddenly it has become a more specific fantasy. Mm-hmm. So you have to have a world to set it. And so my choice was I could set it in a world, my fantasy game, in a world that I'd made up and, ha- and, and that nobody ever heard of and has whatever cool features it has. And in fact, originally, that's what I did with this. Uh, or I could set it in Glorantha, and then I have a lot of this, this, all this depth and background and 50 years of lore that I can just, that I help develop, that I can just dip into, and then I have a world to set it in. You know, it's, uh, it's not generic. So that's what I did. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes sense. And then, you, like you say, you just have this wealth of, of background to draw yeah. on. Yeah, but the point is, it's not supposed to be a game that, if you're a Glorantha fan, well, if you're a Glorantha fan, you'd like it, right? But mm-hmm. the point is that it's a fantasy, a dark fantasy mythic game, and and you don't have to know anything about Glorantha to play it. Most of the people that have played the game in my tests don't know anything about Glorantha. But they know that Chaos is a ravening power, and that Storm is a bully, and that Darkness is a horrible backstabber and scavenger, and the Sky is a, a passive-aggressive, arrogant snoot. And they all this stuff they've got, right, from playing the game. <laughs> And they, they, they've, they've never done anything else with Glorantha, and it doesn't matter, because that, that's not necessary to enjoy the game. Right. Well, and that's all intuitive, anyhow. Right. <laughs> well, let's talk about your, your campaign. Uh, let's see, you've been on Kickstarter for, what, uh, three or four weeks? Yes, uh, I believe I'm ending my third week right now. Right, and so how are things going? Uh, this last week has been slow. I'll tell you. You know, we got we only earned like uh, I guess it's going to be a sound like a first world problem that I earned <laughs> about twenty thousand dollars in the last week. But uh, but given that in the first week we owned earned like three hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah. Then, you know, and I think it's because Frank we we actually quizzed a bunch of our backers who left or reduced their pledge and said, hey, what's what what why why are you doing less this week? And they said that it was the end. It was like the August September switchover when their like bills were due. They they're going back to school. They have to mm. pay vacation bills. And I said, you know, that makes sense. But overall, it's going fabulously well. I mean, we're we have four hundred fifty thousand dollars, and we're uh, we have the last week yet to go, which traditionally is significantly better than than the two middle weeks. The middle weeks are like the doldrums, right? You have a bunch of you have a bunch of guys sign up at the start. You have a bunch of guys sign up at the end, and then if if uh if I'm uh, judging correctly from my last couple of Kickstarters, we keep the pledge manager open for a few months afterwards, and a lot of people will come in and pledge then. I think we got, on, on uh, Onslaught 2 for Cthulhu Wars, we got $400,000 in after pledges. So, really? So overall, this is a, a, a stellar success, and uh, we're very happy with it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I noticed you know right at the top of your campaign, you, you list the stretch goals, kind of what you're working on right now. Yes. Uh Tell us a little bit about what you have planned. 
Well, uh, the, the way our stretch goals are working on this one is every stretch goal adds free things and uh, and usually gameplay things. Uh, occasionally there's something that's blingy, right? But usually gameplay. And so the stretch we're working right now is the full moon, which adds the entire moon faction to the expansion box, the empires. Hmm. And suddenly there's, uh, this gives you like a whole new, well, like I said, a whole new faction to play the game with. Now there's the moon elemental forces with the moon goddess and the crimson bat. And so that is the big thing we're heading for right now, next. And players are all talking about it. And, of course, uh, some of them are saying, oh, no, we're, we're, we're $20,000 away from it, so we're doomed. We'll never make it. But, of course, you know, obviously we'll make it, and it will be in there. A lot of people are, are butterflies, you know, and their emotions rise and fall, which is fine. You know, I'm kind of like that, too. That's why when you asked how it's going, my first reaction was, oh, no, we didn't do well this week. <laughs> looking at... It look, instead of looking at the we would we're almost five hundred percent of our goal, right? Right. Um, which right. we set the goal high to make sure we can do the game, and then it's even higher. So, mm -hmm. so I'm I'm curious, you know, when you talk about adding a new faction as a stretch goal, does that mean? I mean, because obviously there's a, there's a lot of playtesting, a lot of balancing that goes into well, a new faction. Well, we played playtested and balanced the faction, okay? And uh, we've actually we've been playtesting her for the Moon Goddess for like. Like a year and a half so she's all she's ready to go and the reason for the stretch goal is simply because it costs us more we, we work out how much we could do in the game with the, with the basic pledge and there's all these things we can do and then we said oh but there's more stuff we could do that we've actually designed but it will cost us more because we have to make extra steel injection molds in china and we have to you know it, it costs us more money to do it mm -hmm. so that was the we had the stretch goals to pay for those Mm -hmm. and so we we actually did it wouldn't have had to be the moon goddess that we that we left out basically we, we could afford to do seven factions i see okay and um we had to pick one to be the one that we'd have to save for stretch goals and uh we decided it would be moon um but it could have been some other one right mm -hmm. so once this campaign is done manufacturing's done it's shipped what's next for peterson games um, well, our next game is going to be called Something Apocalypse, and and the something is a blank spot for our secret word that we really like that we're keeping secret until we get it copyrighted. <laughs> wow. Um, and effectively, it's I'm going back to my roots as um, in horror, and specifically kind of with Doom. The, the, one of the cool things about the game Doom was that you were a human fighting demons coming through into the world. Mm -hmm. And Apocalypse kind of does that, but instead of being futuristic, it's modern time. And the idea is that all the holy books in the world say that hell is going to rise up someday in the last days and, you know, it'll be bad, right? Mm -hmm. So it's happening. And you are the heroes, the human guys who are leading small groups of soldiers. You know, you'll, you'll have like uh, Navy SEALs and, and Marines and volunteers and whoever, evangelical warriors, right? And you're going up against demons. And, uh, and they're, they're a very medievalish looking fiends. And we're going to, we're going to uh, launch this after we have shipped all of our other Kickstarters, except for God's war, because we want to focus on that too because we want to get our, our other games shipped. We have several Kickstarters not yet shipped, and we're going to ship them by golly. And uh, right. the artist on this is Keith Thompson, who you may or may not have heard of, but among other, he's done a lot of game stuff, and his probably his most famous thing he's done is he did the monsters for Pacific Rim. Mm. Wow. Now, you may, may or may not love Pacific Rim, but the monsters were fabulous. Yeah. 
Is it a co-op game or is it competitive? It is a co-op game. And the reason it's co-op is because that way I can make the demons be as unbalanced and horrible as I want. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is more fun from my point of view. So it's kind of combination of a battle game and a tower defense game because you can plop down your soldiers you have with you as uh, as ambushes and kill the monsters that come through. And all the players, all the characters you can play feel very different and have different abilities. And they all have not only advantages but weaknesses. So your player comes with a weakness. And the weakness actually sometimes helps define your character better than better than the strengths, you know? So there's this one guy who's a really good martial artist, but he's he's superstitious, and so he doesn't dare go where the really big monsters are unless someone's already there first. <laughs> Nobody get there. And one of the other characters, and this is something I'm very proud of, because it's this is a character you see in tons of horror movies all the time and other kinds of movies, but no one's ever done him in a game, and it's the guy who has a, the, in this case a woman, she has a terminal disease. Mm -hmm. Right? She's dying, and as the game progresses and she gets her, her upgrades, she gets crummier. Until she finally goes out in this big explosion of power and like, okay, this is my last stand. And, and you know, just like uh, Tommy Lee Jones in the million movies, right? Goes charging into battle and doing all this damage and then she's dead and you have to get a new character. But, <laughs> but, it's, but you go into it knowing this is her thing, right? right. So like I said, there's something, it's like this iconic thing I've seen in, in movies and stuff, haven't seen in games. And so I tried her out and players love her, you know, because because she's unusual and they recognize like it resonates with them. oh yeah this is the character the guy who's dying right right everyone knows that meme and yeah, Pacific Rim had it right right you know so anyway so there's others there's a bunch of other there's 14 heroes they all do different things right mm -hmm. you know there's 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 the inspirational but kind of disorganized leader and that kind of thing and all these characters there's the doctor who is also a drug addict you know <laughs> And uh, so, so they're they're fun to play. They have interesting features. They have to you have to you have to make up for for your buddy's weaknesses as well as his strengths. And then there's these demons pouring through that make it seem hopeless. We can't possibly win. And it always goes down to the last minute where you where well well, it's a co-op game. And it's my opinion that in general, when you buy a co-op game and play it, you should usually start losing at the start. Right. Otherwise, why keep playing it, right? So it's hard to win, but eventually you start to win it. And whatever you win, you feel like it was just under the wire that you, if you'd waited one or two more turns, you would have lost, but you pulled it off and you feel glorious. So right. Right. That's idea. anyway, but that's the next upcoming game. And it is, uh, it is co-op. Nothing like Cthulhu, like uh, going to the God's War. Like I said, it's co-op. It's got demons. Uh, if you go to the Keith Thompson website, you'll see a picture of one of the demons right there. It's kind of our poster child demon because it looks the most like a regular demon. <laughs> yeah i'll definitely keep an eye out for that sandy i want to ask you a question since you've been involved with game design for so long yes uh so a lot of our listeners are aspiring game designers people who are planning to maybe launch their first game if you were talking to one of them what would you what advice would you have okay here's what i would say i would say do not do a game that will appeal to the mass audience do the game that you really like or the, and that your friends like, and don't worry about that mass audience because I don't think that mass audience exists really. What's going to happen is there's going to be enough people who are bent like you to like that game. And it's way better to have a game that a, that a, a smallish group really likes than a game that everyone kind of only sort of likes. <laughs> so for, let me give you an example. Doom. When we were doing Doom, we did not think it would be very successful. We thought really? it would be somebody. We, well, we didn't, you know, we, no one had ever done a first-person shooter. How are we to know? We thought, we didn't know that it would, that there would be, uh, no one had ever done a game with a lot of, of online back and forth 
head-to-head fighting. Mm-hmm. We put that into the game just because we like to play it. <laughs> we wanted to have it there for us to keep playing it once it was released. Wow. Right? And then, so we uh, put that in, and then it turned out that everyone loved it. <laughs> everyone liked this weird game. And uh, the same thing happened with Call of Cthulhu. I thought that would sell maybe one edition and a few people would like it. And then instead, it's still around, you know, 35 years later. It's highly popular. I thought, uh, you know, it's like, so every time I've, I've, I've gone with something that that I liked and I kind of didn't care if the mass audience liked it, it has been a success. Hmm. And the times that I have pandered to that mass audience, it has not always been a success. Now, of course, that's not going to help if you're extremely crazy and you do a game about, like, <laughs> bean farming or something. Okay. Hey, but Bonanza is one of my favorite games. So I actually I like Bonanza a lot. I just ta- I actually taught a um, at a college today a bunch of master's degree students about tabletop games at a seminar. Uh-huh. And uh, I made them play Bonanza before the, the session and we talked about it. That's why I was <laughs> thinking about Bonanza. But what I'm saying, what I'm saying is if, but if you're crazy, then nothing I say is going to affect you anyway, so don't worry about it. Right, right. Well, Sandy, I have to spring a surprise on you. Okay. Uh, so the true purpose of this podcast is not to talk about your history or the gods of God's war. It's, in fact, to play the game design challenge. Okay. Here, and here's how this works. So I'm going to randomly select a game theme, give it to you, and then you're going to think about it, uh, preferably out loud, and then pitch back to me what that game might be. Okay. You up for that? I am up for that. Okay, very good. So I'm going to find a theme. And we're going to go with Deserted Airport. Ooh. Tabletop game with a deserted airport. Okay, so so tragically, the first thing I think of, because I'm a huge buff of terrible movies, <laughs> Langoliers, which, has, which all takes place in a deserted airport. Which I'm really hoping you have not seen. I haven't. I, I have no idea, but it's I'll take your word for it. Hours long of endless tedium, and suddenly a bunch of Pac-Man come out of nowhere and eat the world. <laughs> I'm thinking deserted airport. Airport is a creepy idea. It's uh, it's kind of horror oriented. And then my next thought is, if it's horror. But the other thing about an airport is that there was times in World War II, and I'm kind of a World War II buff, where people had to fight over at airports and they were really lethal because mm-hmm. when you're charging across the runway, there's nowhere to dig in and hide. And the machine guns just massacred your guys. There's right. Nowhere, nowhere to disguise themselves. So, so they're really scary. So now I'm thinking of a game where one side is trying to do something at the airport. I like the idea of a horror theme. I've done that in the past. Okay. And I combine that. I think with the, there's nowhere to hide idea. So there is some, force at the airport some enemy force which you are trying to evade or get by and mm-hmm. that your purpose is logically to steal an airplane and get away right Therefore, one of the players is a pilot and there's airplanes there and the airport is haunted by hmm, zombies monsters mindless creatures giant insects Vampires, maybe not vampires, because they can fly. Right. And insects can fly. I'm gonna have to go back to of all things zombies because zombies seem like they might be loose to the airport and flying away on a plane sounds like a really good way to get away from zombies. So 
There's zombies chasing you to the airport. Some of them are already at the airport. They're in the baggage claim. They're around. You have to get through them. You have to find a plane that you can fly. You have to gas it up. You have to get the pieces together. Meanwhile, holding up the zombies. And if you stay in one place too long, they're going to swarm you. You can't possibly defeat them all. So you got to keep moving. From ha- And each new hangar might have things in it. Okay? Um, and so, uh, actually, you know what would be more interesting than zombies? Deadites. Like Bruce Campbell's Deadites. And that way some of them could fly, which could be an issue, because remember there's the flying one in the Army of Darkness. Right, right. So there's deadites. They're primitive and medieval. You have guns or maybe not so much ammo. And so there's my game idea. It is uh, it is uh, team-based. One player is the deadites. One player are the humans. The humans have to do a bunch of things. You get an airplane, get out, while the deadites are bringing them down. One human gets away and, he, and your whole side wins. Hmm. So it's okay to sacrifice yourself against the deadites if you must. And there is my game. What do you think? I love it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm ready to play. All right. Well, there we are. <laughs> well done. Very well done. And I, and I tried to give you my my thought processes in the way, which is making you think, and this is the guy that dissed people who are crazy. Um, <laughs> okay. So that's my oh, very, that's my very good. Well, Sandy, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you this evening. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And all the best of luck with the rest of your campaign, God's, you. God's War. For the God's War on Kickstarter, God's does not have an apostrophe. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure why not, but it's, it's how Greg used to always spell it. So it might be more based on his uh, not making it through college than on it being correct. <laughs> <clears throat> but there it is. Very good. Okay. All right. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Well, that was Sandy Peterson the founder of Peterson Games, and the creator of The God's War, on Kickstarter now. This episode of Your Tables on Fire is brought to you by Word Domination, the clever word-slash-area-control game currently on Kickstarter. Check it out by visiting www.worddomination.net. Thanks for tuning in to Your Tables on Fire. You can follow us on Twitter at TableFire. Also, check out our website for show notes and a direct link to Sandy's game. That's www.yourtablesonfire.com. Did you know we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and BoardGameGeek? Hit us up on any of those sites and give us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Well, until next time, go light it up. (laughs) 